Welcome to another edition of the Find Your Calling podcast. I'm Todd Wilson, the host, and I could not be more excited than I am to have Oz Guinness on with me today. Welcome, Oz. Thanks for having me. A delight to be on. Well, Oz is an author and social critic. He's written and edited more than 30 books, including the book The Call. Oz has a distinguished career in writing and speaking and teaching. He's currently a senior fellow at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics in Oxford, and he still lives here in Washington, D.C. with his wife, Jenny. Oz is one of those people that has probably impacted me over the last couple of years as much as anyone else. I'm finishing a book on calling myself. I sat down at the beginning of the writing process with Oz uh, just to ask him to coach me, to help me with some insights. And, And Oz, you may not remember it, but the first time we sat down, you asked me the question, are you just going (laughs) to write another self-help book? Sometimes we don't realize how one question from a person can change the shape of things. But that one question you asked me really set the course for the last five years of writing that I've done. So I'd like you to Just spend a minute or two. The next 6 to 12 months, there will be more resources on personal calling coming out than in the last six years. It's really touching a nerve with people, and much of the resource that comes out might be in that category of self-help books. So would you just spend a couple of minutes, why did you ask me that question, and tell us a little bit, even as a social critic and a person who studies the landscape, why that's a concern for you? Well... You look at the discussion right now of the accommodationism of evangelicalism, how it's just caved in and it's more cultural and political than it is really biblical and theological. You can see evangelicals have this capacity to take things that are hot topics in the in the culture and just give a biblical ang- angle on them. They just often use the gospel, and nothing is easier to use than calling because it touches such incredibly deep nerves. And so that's why I was just testing you out. And I appreciate you didn't do that. Well, how would you personally define calling? You know, you've got one of the deeper books with a theological basis in calling called The Call, Finding and Fulfilling the Central Purpose of Your Life. Tell us what your kind of working definition of calling is. Well, let me come to that. But as, as background, it's a very biblical idea. And you know, in the Old Testament, the Jews put a heavy stress on hearing, not on seeing. Paganism, idols, and so on, are what you see. In the Old Testament, starting with Abraham, God calls an individual, a family, then a nation. But the supreme examples of calling in the Scripture is our Lord. Follow me, follow me, follow me. And what's amazing is they get up and follow him, most of them, three years before they realize who he is. Now, there's something about the call of Jesus that had a tone and authority that just demanded obedience. But the way I define it is this. Calling means that when God calls us in Jesus, follow me, everything we are, our very being, everything we do, all our actions, and everything we own, all our possessions, are given a direction and a dynamic because everything now is done as unto him as a response to his call. And that, I think, is the heart of calling. In the call, you say, uh, discover the meaning of calling, and you discover the heart of the gospel itself. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, if you ask how people define the gospel, they often break away into, we're asked to subscribe to the following ten beliefs, and you're, Orthodox and solid evangelical, if you believe these ten, 
Jesus never called to that. He just called people to himself. So if you analyze what the Reformers called the primary call, the, the call by the Lord, to the Lord, for the Lord, there are really three parts of that at, at the very least in the Gospels. One, we're called to know and trust him and his Father. So the heart of everything is relationship. Then secondly, we're called to live his way, the way of Jesus. And as you know, in the early church, they weren't called Christians by themselves. They were called followers of the way, followers of Jesus. And we, we've lost that. People think you have to believe all these doctrines to be a Christian. Certainly there are deep truths we do believe, but we're called to know him and to live his way. And the third thing we're called to is to share our faith with others, so they become disciples the way we're disciples, the Great Commission. And those, I think, are at the very heart of the ministry of Jesus, called to be part of his followership. It seems like we almost could almost say have an epidemic of people discontented, restless. You know, many people articulate, I just wish I could find my purpose. And I, I think God does give us a deep longing for purpose. How would you articulate the relationship between calling and that deep longing for purpose that we have? Well, we have a deep longing for meaning, a deep longing for identity, a deep longing for purpose, as you rightly say. And, and they're all part of coming to know Jesus and having a Christian view of the world, a Christian worldview. And so purpose is certainly fundamental, and it's no accident that our Western culture, which is shaped at this point by calling, our Western culture is the most purposeful culture in history. You don't find this in the East. In the East, you might say, forget it. In other words, freedom in the Hinduism and Buddhism, to put simply, is not freedom to be yourself. It's freedom from yourself, what the Buddhists call the not-self. Because being yourself is the illusion that's captivating you. If you go to our secularist friends, they're not much better. It's all do-it-yourself. But in the biblical view, purpose is not only God's creating us. In other words, we're each unique, made in the image of God. Be who you are. He created you. But it's also become whom you can become because he's called you. In other words, our Lord knows us far better than we know ourselves or the people who love us but most know us. Our Lord who knows us calls us and we grow and rise and deepen and mature and over the course of lifetime, we become the people he's got in mind for us all along. And that's why calling is undoubtedly the deepest sense of purpose in all human history, and nothing rivals it. Well, so often when we meet a person for the first time, people see their identity in what they do. What's the danger in our doing and all of our activity taking precedence over our, the, the identity of our being? Well, we've got to remember that work and fulfillment and calling got alienated by the fall. And since the fall, work is creative, yes, but it's also cursed. And we've got to remember the two sides of that. So the trouble is people tend to view their work as their identity and gives them their purpose, and that's extremely dangerous. At many, many levels, even say at the end of life, you never retire from a calling or you may retire from a job. And a vocation is not an occupation. Now, let me put it more carefully. Before the Reformation, the idea was around, which you have in the Greeks and the Romans and much of the Catholic Church, that leisure is higher than work. Work's a dirty necessity. 
And the brilliance of what the Reformation did, Martin Luther's teaching, say, on calling in his book, The Babylon Captivity, he says, occupation, too, is a vocation. So it brings the holiness into the workaday world. And that was incredibly revolutionary. It gave a dignity to work. It gave a dignity to the common person, including the laborer. It gave a dignity to the humdrum and the menial. But the trouble was that it was so profound, it prospered magnificently, partly giving a rise to capitalism. But then it undermined itself, because then occupation was used, or rather vocation, was used as a synonym for occupation. And now you have people talking about vocational aptitude tests or vocational colleges, and they don't mean anything to do with the Lord at all. The notion's been secularized. And so I think we who are followers of Jesus need to say, there is no calling without a caller. And a lot of the talk about vocation is absolute nonsense if you remove the caller. In other words, they've hijacked our deeply biblical word and emptied it of all meaning. Would you say that you can always find a vocation in the occupation you're in, or sometimes do you have to change occupations to find your true vocation? Well, put it like this. For most human beings in most of history, including most humans today, you've just got to do what you've got to do to put bread on the table. And most people in history just did what their fathers and grandfathers, mothers and grandmothers did. They had absolutely zero choice. And part of the privilege of our modern world is we have incredible choice. Now, the trouble is we have a spoiled sense. People think that they can always find a calling that will fit the job they do. But that isn't so. And the classic biblical example is the Apostle Paul. The heart of his calling is to be an apostle of the Gentiles. But he can't go down to the labor exchange and find apostles of the Gentiles, 50,000, 75,000 a year. Can't do that, obviously. And he doesn't want to re- rely on wealthy Corinthian patrons. So what he does is use his skill to make tents. And we have our spiritual word today, tent making. That was doing something you need to do to make your real calling possible. So people are doctors in countries where they wouldn't allow in a missionary, and so on. So we've got to be very realistic. Not everyone can find a job that fits their gifts and calling. But the point is, even with the most humdrum jobs, the most awful jobs, Paul says, a slave exercising his calling, doing it as unto the Lord, not unto his master, lives differently. And that was a tremendous reformation, a street sweeper, doing it for the Lord, lifted the menial and the humdrum to a higher level. Now, if you're, say, middle class or higher, and you have the chance of choosing a job that fits your calling, go for it. In other words, if calling were taught from age 10 onwards, so parents are drawing out the gifts of their kids, teachers are drawing out the gifts of their students, coaches are drawing out the gifts of their players, and so on. People should have, by the time they go to college, a growing sense, this is me, these are my natural and spiritual gifts, and then when they're ready to go out into the work world, they choose a job, a career, that fits the gifts. They don't just choose it because it's successful, popular, lucrative, or whatever. 
Let me ask you your advice. Two groups of people. We've got baby boomers living longer and longer with more years of productive time left after they retire from their occupation. And then we have the young millennials that are seeing their parents and grandparents and saying, well, I want to get into my calling now. I don't want to have to wait till I have a midlife crisis. What advice do you have to those two groups? I would say, of course, what they're asking is right. In other words, the day you put your faith in Jesus, you have a calling. Now, I talked earlier the primary call, the call to him and by him and for him. But what you're talking about here is the secondary calling, as the reformers put it. In other words, the use of our natural gifts, our resources, and the use of our circles of influence. We bring these to the Lord, and they are the talents and pounds which we're to multiply and maximize. So we have a calling from day one following Jesus. So the idea that there are two stages in life, or, you know, the heretical idea that two calls in life, that is dead wrong dead wrong. You have one call, the call of God through Jesus, that runs through the whole of life, and of course we have a growing understanding, we become more mature, we realize that our gift is this, not that, so we're doing something here and something a little different there. It should grow like that, but you you get that sense of calling the day you begin to follow Jesus. You articulate very clearly in your book Uh, the distinction between what you've referred to as primary and secondary calling, the idea that our primary calling is common to all Christians everywhere, all the time. It's a relational calling to the one who created us. And our secondary calling is, is then God's unique equipping to help us play our unique part in his mission here on earth. What is the consequence of elevating that secondary calling to be more prominent and focused than the primary calling? Well, the trouble is you make an idol of whatever we put in the place of the Lord, whether it's work or nationalism or whatever it is. And many people have made an idolatry of their work, and they are literally driven trying to find satisfaction in work itself, and it simply doesn't work. You know, the Rolling Stones put it well, can't get no satisfaction. Or the Ecclesiastes put it well, you do that, you're just chasing the wind. All is vanity, and so on. So we can never, ever get the secondary and the primary out of joint. And the reason is simple. It's because of the primary. We're called to the lordship of Jesus. It's unthinkable that if he's not lord, he should be lord of everything. It's unthinkable that any part of our lives is outside of it, whether it's a spreadsheet to an investment banker or whatever it is. Every part of our life comes under that lordship, and they should never be separated. It was the Catholics who tended to separate the first one and make the primary everything. And you have this way back in Eusebius of Caesarea in the third century. He said there are two types of Christians, the perfect and the permitted. Well, of course, the perfect were the priests, the monks, the nuns, the so-called aristocrats of the soul. And the rest of us, the lay people, farmers, lawyers, soldiers, etc., just get along as best they can. They're the permitted Christians. That's appalling. Among other things, it lets us, the lay people, off the hook and puts all the stress on God's people, the, the clergy, and so on. And that's a disaster. The Reformation was powerful because it recovered not just the priesthood of all believers, but the calling of all believers. And the church really became salty and light-bearing, and the Reformation is one of the great creators of modern society.
Well, as you make a distinction between special calling and ordinary calling, can you tell us what the difference is and why that's important? Well, I put that in because a lot of people are sitting around waiting for it. They don't think they have a calling unless they have a vision, like Paul's vision of the man from Macedonia or the Lord's uh, Isaiah's vision uh, of the Lord in the temple. And those are special, direct, supernatural callings where people directly experience the Lord. Now, most Christians don't have that. We've come to put our faith in Jesus. That's when we get our calling, the primary call, as I said. So there is no Christian who does not have a calling. And that primary call is a full-time task, to know him, live his way, share it with others, and so on. So the trouble is too many Christians in America sitting around, and they're waiting for, quote, it, that vision or that voice. Unless they experience it, they're sitting around. But they end up like the man with a talent who did nothing and put his talent in the napkin in the ground and was soundly rebuked and judged by his master when he returned. And too many Christians are going to say, I didn't know my calling. Yes, the whole of the gospel makes clear what our calling is. So we may not all see a vision or hear a voice like Isaiah did, like Paul did, but we still all got a calling. That's the normal call. Well, you state that calling equalizes the distinction between clergy and lay people. What do you mean and why is this important? Well, it's terribly important because it's a problem for the clergy and it's a problem for lay people. It's a problem for the clergy because it makes them elitist and it makes them corrupt. And you can see that pride and corruption has been the abiding curse of pastors. And you look at evangelicalism today, it is a tragedy. You know the old saying, the fish rots from the head first. It's a tragedy that in the last generation, celebrity pastors, remember the word pastor means shepherd. Think of the oxymoron of a celebrity shepherd. Celebrity pastors have been one of the main reasons for the corruption of evangelicalism. Oh, and then uh, the other half of the thing, as I said earlier, the rest of us, I'm a layperson too, we're off the hook. It's all up to God's people, the pastors. They do the work. We just come along, fill the pews, and give occasionally to keep them in business, but that's it. We're off the hook. No. As Martin Luther, he didn't use these words, this is my word, it is everyone, everywhere, in everyone, in everything. And that comprehensiveness, the ministers, that's their calling. Lay people, we have a different calling. Teachers, computer scientists, politicians, lawyers, you name it. So we all have callings. We do that. I would suggest, you know, you think of all the recent attempts to turn this country around. Well, we're at a stage now, and the current election shows it, where only God can turn much of the problem around. But if you take our human part, more effect would happen through 10 years of every follower of Christ in America exercising their calling. That would achieve more than 100 Christian organizations put end to end. So often... You have churches that the leadership is trying to see their role, you know, out of Ephesians 4, that, you know, our role as leaders is to equip others for the works of service. And yet there's this great tension. You know, the very methods and approaches that are growing our big churches today 
are somewhat a barrier maybe to mobilizing everyone on calling like you're talking about. So what would your advice be to the pastor who that's open to trying to mobilize everyone the way you're talking and yet the tension that they've got for doing church the way they're doing it? Yeah, that's a big question, a much tougher one, as you know, Todd. Put it this way, the maximum size for a community that's truly human and has face-to-face quality is around 200, 250, so scientists tell us. Now, you obviously can go to big cities of 40 million people, or you can go to churches, 40,000 megachurches. But here's the point. Whatever it is that allows you to go from the 250 to the 40,000 or million, whatever that is, whether it's roads in Los Angeles or media through our multi-site churches, that will be shaping the quality of the community. And we need to biblically critique these things to make sure that the biblical truths are not lost in the growth and the success which is so wonderful that people don't think biblically anymore. And we get away from notions like the Incarnation and its view of presence, or what you're saying rightly, the whole notion of calling of all believers. In other words, the bigger churches have to lean against their size by having small groups. You know, and Rick Warren always says that the small groups at Saddleback are much more important than the big services and so on. And that's where the real discipling takes place. So there's got to be intense biblical discipling at some point that is face-to-face and really deep fellowship, rich teaching, and truly accountability. I'd like to end with this, Oz. Uh, You referred to the election cycle we're in. Recently, a Gallup survey came out that surveyed millennials, and nearly two-thirds of those surveyed prefer socialism or communism over capitalism within millennials. In your book, The Call, you talk about how it was people living on calling or calling that really helped propel capitalism, but you also highlight that it's calling that can keep capitalism in check and under control. Could you just elaborate on that a little bit, given its relevance today? (laughs) Yes. Sadly, that's just one of a hundred points where many in the younger generation have an incredible historical ignorance in an alarming way. And you look at, say, young Americans in their view, who won the Civil War or what the colonial revolution was about and who won World War II and things like that. The ignorance is at remarkable levels today, and it's absolutely disastrous. We need to know our history to remember the road we've come from. But you're right. In the scriptures, calling, and you look at the parable of the towns and pounds, it's entrepreneurial. And in both versions, in Matthew 25 and in Luke 19, the master, the prince, gives out his gifts, talents, and then leaves. In other words, there's zero micromanagement, zero supervision, zero instructions. They're not told, put it in this hedge fund and then transfer it to this whatever. No, they've got to work it out for themselves. And this is where Bob Buford's been so terrific. They're called to maximize and multiply those gifts they're given. One, two, five, ten, and so on. And so calling is entrepreneurial. And Christians who confuse calling with guidance, that's a terrible mistake. Guidance is specific. In the Word, the Scripture, and by the Holy Spirit, we're given very specific guidance. Do this, live this way, 
don't do this, don't live that way. Very specific. Calling, though, overlaps with that. And obviously, we want to be guided by God any time he wants to guide us. And we've got lots of instructions in Scripture. But calling is also entrepreneurial. Because the Lord doesn't tell us all the things we should do every day. He wants us to use our responsibility and decide what's the best way to invest our gifts and to make the most of them and so on. So we've got to get that clear. Guidance is specific. Calling is entrepreneurial. And we should be the entrepreneurs. We tend to think we copy business. No, business actually copied us. Hebrews 11, you see the entrepreneurialism of faith. And I call calling a matter of entrepreneurs for life. Well, Oz, this has just been a joy for me to get to talk with you today. I just feel like I continue to learn from you every time we talk. For anyone that wants to connect more with Oz, his last book that came out in the summer of 15 was Fool's Talk. That book recently won Christianity Today's Award for Evangelism and Apologetics. Oz's next book about to debut is called Impossible People, which comes out in June of 16. Oz, why don't you just spend a minute telling us about that next book? Well, the title comes from the description of Peter Damien in the 11th century, a reformer before the Reformation. And he was called an impossible person man because he was unmanipulable, unbribable, incorruptible, undeterrable. In other words, he was so sold out to Jesus, he couldn't be manipulated. And I argue that's what we need as Christians today. Too many Christians, certainly evangelicals, are so amiably accommodating to our culture that they've compromised the gospel. So you have this tragedy. Well, anyone that wants more on Oz can uh, Google Oz Guinness and get to his website. So thanks for being with us today, Oz. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Todd. Thank you.